Inside the stone wall, the dance floor had been taken over by the long-legged, fierce-eyed antics of the STAR members. Angry lesbians, angrier drag queens, excessive mourning, staggering heat, racial tensions, the examples of civil disobedience set by the women's movement, the anti-war protests of the Black Panthers, all the elements were present, and only a single flame was needed to ignite the bonfire. I think the riot had something to do with Judy Garland's death. It's really our Bastille Day, Lou said. Lily Law shouldn't have messed with us the day that Judy died. My dissertation is a triptych of sorts, exploring the roles of fag hags, breeders, and idols. However, the statement, it had something to do with Judy Garland, might be a better title for this presentation. On the 28th of June, 1969, police raided the now infamous gay bar, the Stonewall Inn, in Greenwich Village, New York. Whilst police raids, bar closures and arrests have been a nightly occurrence for decades, the 28th of June was different. A number of the bar's patrons had spent the early part of the day outside the Frank Campbell funeral home, where Judy Garland's funeral was held. She had died the Sunday before, and New York City's gay bars had draped themselves in black crepe in mourning. It was almost precisely at midnight that the moral squad pulled up to the Stonewall Inn, led by Deputy Inspector Seymour Pine. As customers were loaded into the police paddy wagon, the Queens began to fight back, inciting a riot that would spark the foundation of the New York's Gay Liberation Front, heralding the gay liberation movement and its uncloseted community making. In an eyewitness account for the 1984 documentary Before Stonewall, Homophile activist Craig Rodwell declares the Stonewall Riots one of those moments of his in history. This was it, the moment we'd been waiting for. Stonewall represents a Kantian sign of history, a moment that disrupts, in Leotard's words, the great discursive nuclei, that is to say, the dominant discourses of the heterosexual dictatorship. Echoing what Leotard and Foucault see as the paradigmatic sign of history in the French Revolution, Stonewall is the gay Bastille. It is a queer moment of disruption, the naturalised inevitable sequentiality of heterosexual futurity, which is of course predicated on the Enlightenment's ideas of progressive history, as well as capitalism's discourse of inheritance, are all cast into sublime disorder. Their straight lines of linear progression are put out of joint, or as one might say, bent. This moment presents, in Leotard's terms, a fission of the single purpose. In a world of compulsory heterosexuality, it opens up the possibility of an alternative existence, of a Ranciarian subjectivation. Stonewall's sign of history heralds the possibility of what Leotard terms the formation and free explorations of ideas in the plural, an infinity of heterogeneous finalities, including the chance of a fully-fledged gay liberation the slightest possibility of securing Ranciere's political equality. Now, no major historical accounts of, Sto of the Stonewall riots and gay liberation directly attribute Garland's funeral as a factor influencing this political disruption. Indeed, her death was hardly necessary for this kind of civil disobedience. However, from film to fiction, and from testimonial to autobiography, the death of Judy Garland, this pinnacle of the gay male pantheon of idolised women and the ultimate fag hag, has remained irrevocably bound to the Stonewall, both to the Stonewall, to the Stonewall legend. Her death, 
placed time and time again in symbolic symmetry to the birth of gay liberation. As Stephen Madison writes, Judy's very ubiquity within these accounts offers us a very marker of the importance of relationships between gay men and women, and more specifically, the female's relationship to the disruption of heteronormative discourses as she opens up the field for queer narratives of liberation and community making. Now, despite these accounts, the question of women's role in, in homosexual culture in the pre-Stonewall period has been largely under-theorised. As Jennifer Doyle comments, sexist and homophobic institutions have indisputably hidden sex stories and non-normative kinships. These include the theorisation of the intimate, liberating and divisive bonds homosexual men form with women. In, in terms defined by the sociologist Dawn Moon, my dissertation considers the representation of women in the pre-Stonewall pre homosexual fiction as one of insult and inclusion. Looking at works by Christopher Isherwood, Tennessee Williams and James Baldwin alongside pop culture depictions, we see that the fag hag straddles paradoxical roles. Firstly, she is an abject figure, a vampiric converter of men. She is the Shiva-like destructor of queer communities and heterotopic spaces. A mere breeder, the female is, as issued terms, a gross, insucking vulva of sly, ruthless, greedy flesh. Secondly, within a homosexual community, which is nonetheless patriarchal, the female is ripe for appropriation and male use. In a homosexual reworking of Cedric and Rubin's homosocial triangles, women like Catherine Holly of Tennessee Williams' Suddenly Last Summer are exploited to work as bait to secure homosexual, sorry, homosexual kinships. Finally, and perhaps most crucially, and as I will briefly elucidate upon in the brief time I have left, the heterosocial kinship of the fag hag and the queer male engages in a fundamentally queer way of life. A riotous, ecstatic kinship of radical kindness and support. This fag hag is necessarily queer, disrupting and liberating, uh, liberating uh, themselves from the binds of, of heterosexual dictatorship. Friends and cruising partners, Cora and Billy of Tennessee Williams' short story, Two on a Party, epitomise this radically queer, heterosocial kinship. An overweight alcoholic and a broke, balding, unemployed paperback writer, Cora and Billy are failures according to the heterocapitalist model. Rejecting uh, what they term the heterosexual squares, Cora and Billy are held together by, quote, a rare sort of mon moral anarchy a shared hatred of, the, of heterosexuality's bourgeois, phony rules of convention. They refuse heterosexual success and its compulsory sequential oedipality, as epitomised in, quote, the spectre of Cora's family in Alexandria, Louisiana, the spectre of Billy's family in Montgomery, Alabama, all those bull-like middle-aged couples. The straight fag-hag Cora and the homosexual Billy inhabit a queer present, embracing both Foucault's friendship and Halberstam's failure as a way of life. Pitting themselves against the one great, terrible, worst of all enemies, the pitchfork-bearing devil of time, they reject futurity. Rather, they actively elect the Monosian ecstatic horizon, inhabiting an outlaw existence. They are two on a party. One can get off this fast-moving train or choose to jump on board. 
Occupying an ecstatic present of one-night stands, threesomes and drunkenness, they revel in the frenzy, the quote, thrill of something lawless. In this fag-hag kinship, Cora, despite her straight credentials, becomes an enthusiastic accomplice in a distinctly queer way of life, encouraging Billy to stay on the party, to continue to disrupt the heteronorm. More than this, however, Billy's and Cora's is a kinship that informs a loving community of protection from the cruelties of the heterosexual dictatorship. Theirs is a, quote, monumental kindness, staving off queer loneliness and shielding the other from harm. Billy fights off Cora's male abusers, and Cora herself even gives her up, herself up to rape to protect her fag from homophobic attack. Their heterosocial kinship presents a loving, united front against oppression. In <coughs> Relational Love, a feminist Christian vision, Linnell Cady writes that, Love is a mode of relating that seeks to establish bonds between the self and the other, creating a unity out of formerly detached individuals. The loving relationship between the selves does not swallow up individuals, blurring their identities and concerns. On the contrary, the wider life created by love constitutes a community of persons. In a community, persons retain their identity and they also share a commitment to the continued well-being of the relational life uniting them. Love thus has a key intersectional power. The <coughs> radical love of the straight fag hag and the queer, of the heterocora and the homo billy, is a supportive, creative and loving intersectional front against oppression. If the fag-hag queer relationship involves an elected existence of failure, as Sartre declares in Saint-Genais, qui perd gagne, he who loses wins. Thank you.